This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello everyone, Simon here. Just a few words before the main introduction. Um, We had a few connection and internet problems this week. Um, I think it's leftover effects from last week's storms. Um, So we couldn't get everyone in the same virtual room to chat. Um, Instead, we got a couple of segments with me, Helen Froh and Graham A. Forbes talking about the situation in Ukraine and hate crimes. Um, And then in the middle, I'm talking with Andy White, who's a comedian based in Birmingham, about that Jimmy Carr joke. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on Thursday the 24th of February. This is the week that saw Russia recognising the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk in Ukraine as new independent states, with Russian attacks happening as we speak. The UK government unveiled new ideas for funding higher education in England and the Beijing Winter Olympics concluded. In this week's episode, we'll be thinking about the situation in Ukraine and hate crime and other issues. We'll also see what else pops up. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Helen Fro, who's Professor of Practical Philosophy at the University of Stockholm. Hi, Simon. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, Thanks, Helen. And also from the University of Kent, Graham A. Forbes, who's head of department here at Kent. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks, both of you. So let's get straight to it and start with Ukraine. Um, As I said, there are very concerning developments happening as we record on Thursday afternoon. Um, Helen, you're a, a noted expert on the ethics of war and peace. Could you give us a brief summary of the main ideas of just war theory? Because this might be a moment when we need some cool heads as well as some swift action. And also give us some of your first ideas about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, well, I always want to push back a little bit when people talk about just war theory, because it feeds into this view that there's a kind of um, special set of moral principles that are going to tell us when war's justified and, and why, um, and how we're allowed to fight the wars that we do wage. Um, and I don't think we need any special principles to do that. I think that the moral principles that regulate our conduct in general and ordinary life um, also regulate the resort to war and how wars are fought. Um, and the, I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is this kind of a case in point, right? So you don't you don't need me to tell you that um, this is an unjustified war. Um, it's clearly just an aggressive action by Russia against Ukraine. And that's something we can just understand by looking at pretty familiar moral principles, right? So we have Putin who's using force to acquire something that he has no right to acquire the end's unjustified and therefore there are no means by which he can justifiably try to achieve it. Um, uh, So I think this is kind of a a really good example of why we should not think of the ethics of war as being this kind of distinctive realm where we've got to kind of have special principles to help us understand what's going on. It's just pretty straightforward um, for straightforward reasons in this case that what's going on is impermissible. Um, So one of the sort of upshots of this is that some of the notions that might be familiar to people when they hear discussions about the ethics of war and um, so terms like kind of proportionality uh, discrimination between civilians and combatants and so on are just pretty much irrelevant to our evaluation of Russia's actions because everything that Putin is doing is disproportionate for example because 
He doesn't have any morally permissible ends. And proportionality is about weighing the harms that you're going to impose against the goods that you're trying to achieve. And those need to be morally permissible goods. Um, and given that what he's trying to achieve is morally impermissible, everything that he does is disproportionate. And we can say sort of similar things about, say, the requirement of discrimination, which is understood as the requirement normally to distinguish between combatants and civilians or more broadly legitimate and illegitimate targets. But Putin shouldn't be killing anyone or ordering anybody else to kill, to kill anyone. He doesn't have any legitimate targets here. It's not as if it's permissible for Putin to order the killing of Ukrainian soldiers. Um, and so, again, these sort of ideas which are often used to kind of trot it out to try and evaluate the wars that people fight um, just kind of don't have an application, I think, in this area when, when you're talking about somebody who's waging an unjustified war. Um, so one thing I think we should try and be mindful of when we hear discussions about the Russian invasion is that we shouldn't start kind of seeding any sort of moral ground um, by talking about, say, whether or not this invasion is proportionate or whether or not this invasion adheres to the principle of discrimination, because there aren't such things as proportionate unjust wars or discriminate unjust wars. One question I, I would ask, I suppose, is if we take that kind of thinking, how is it going to apply to sort of NATO's potential support of Ukraine? So Ukraine obviously are allowed to defend themselves. There's at least some potential for this to turn into some kind of proxy war between NATO and Russia, where NATO arm um, Ukrainian personnel or send in NATO special forces. Um, is there a danger that NATO's actions can very quickly become unjustified and and so consequently nobody's justified here and it's just a mess? Like so, so, so how do we get a kind of an asymmetry out? between um, NATO's proposed actions and Russia's actions? Um, I mean, NATO countries are already arming Ukraine. Um, so that's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's happening already. Um, I mean, and the fact that I mean, nothing I've said is kind of going to undermine the thought that there can be a proportionate response to unjustified aggression. And as you say, you know, permissible for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. I think it's probably permissible for other countries to support that defence. Um, I don't think there's a worry that... Um, simply because people who are waging unjustified wars can't appeal to notions of proportionality or necessity and discrimination to try and um, give this kind of veneer of justification to what they do. Um, there's nothing about that that means that we shouldn't judge the actions of, uh, say, NATO-backed countries um, in terms of the, uh, the way in which they fight their, their defensive wars. So one of the thoughts I often have about this case is there's a bigger global context here in which one of the explanations for the interest of the Americans is strategic interests in Taiwan. It's clearly there's going to be a broad array of interests at stake here and that states are going to be motivated by all kinds of strategic interests. Um, but in that sense, I think it could be that you know their participation is, is over-determined. Um, it's not that that would mean that therefore it's impermissible for them to assist Ukraine just because they've got, you know, as states always do, other reasons for the things that they're doing. The difficult questions here is about uh, um, the form of the assistance that um, the support for Ukraine should take. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot uh, this morning. I mean, I'm I, I'm not a hawkish person. Um, I tend to be pretty. I tend to think most wars are unjustified. Um, I'm pretty skeptical about things like the permissibility of arming rebel groups, for example, um, sort of outside interference in in conflicts. That's in that way. Um, but in this case. Um, it does seem to me that there's going, you know, 
there's a pretty strong, at least a pretty strong case for thinking that um, other countries are going to have to do more than simply supply weapons. So it looks like um, this is going to be a case in which the justification for actually, I mean, whether or not they would do it or not, but um, they may mainly not have much choice, but for actually militarily um, intervening, putting boots on the ground, um, because partly because of the threat to, to NATO states. And so if there's any incursion onto NATO territory, then NATO states won't have much choice other than to use military force. Um, and then there's the question, well, well, if it looks like things are heading in that direction, why would you wait that long? Um, and plus there's also just the independent, you know, the sort of the intrinsic wrong that's being done to Ukraine um, and the broader threat that the Russian aggression poses to European security um, that, I mean, certainly, I mean, at the very least, the case for intervention looks much more compelling here than it ever did for Iraq or Afghanistan. Sure. Can I ask you then a different sort of question, Helen? So rather than boots on the ground and that sort of intervention, what about all the sanctions that people have been talking about? Because um, there are certain sort of sanctions where people have been talking about, you know, Russian billionaires and, and banks and so on. And of course, that seems quite easy in this set morally easy because you know we don't we don't want to you know they aren't ordinary citizens i mean they're going to be hurt but they're billionaires right but there's lots of things that could be done to the russian state um which will have effects over time they're really going to hurt ordinary people in russia i mean in this sort of situation do you think those things are justified i think they can be um if they'll be effective and Mm -hmm. um so i think we can have lesser evil justifications for imposing harms on people who are innocent and not, not liable to bear to bear those kinds of costs um, if it's necessary for averting some catastrophic harm. Um, the worry is that I guess there's a, there's a kind of it would be easy to engage in the sort of the following kind of mistaken reasoning where we think that um, we might think that very severe sanctions are justified and therefore think that any lesser form of sanctions must also be justified. Mm-hmm. But if those lesser sanctions aren't going to be effective, then that won't be true because what justifies the sanctions, the very severe ones, is the, is the thought that they have some reasonable prospect of working. Um, so the sanctions that, say, the UK has put in place at the moment, I, you know, I think are going to be pretty much irrelevant to, to the Russians' deliberations about what to do. Um, whether more comprehensive sanctions would be more effective, I just don't know. I mean, the one that problems about being a philosopher who works on war is that so many of the questions about what we should do in particular conflicts turns on empirical information that Mm -hmm. you you and I simply don't have access to. Um, But insofar as sanctions are going to be effective, I think they can be justified, even though um, they will impose harms on ordinary Russian civilians who, let's say, are not liable to bear those costs. Um, The worry is that the sanctions that seem to be in play at the moment don't look like those kinds of sanctions, and it's not clear that the kinds of sanctions that are in play at the moment are going to be effective. Hmm. So, I mean, a question I've got um, that you point out that what we should do really turns on empirical questions that we don't have good answers to. Um, that's going to be pretty common in wars, that um, we're, we're under the fog of war where we just don't have good information. And indeed, the levels of disinformation in this war are likely to be sort of exceptionally high. It's, it clearly seems to be one of the tactics um, that is being used is to um, flood social media with various kinds of information and disinformation. Is there something kind of difficult about us as philosophers trying to come up with a, a hot take on Ukraine when philosophy is by far at its best with cold takes, 
where we <laughs> we can reflect on things. So so given just how messy, I mean, that there, there's a, as it were a philosophical question in here about um, reasoning under uncertainty, where we can seem to do something wrong by exploring lots of avenues when decisive action is what's required, um, or by sort of um, doing slow reasoning um, when the situation is so dynamic that we will waste time kind of deliberating and, and forming a thing and the situation will have just changed before we've reached any interesting conclusions. I mean, that's one of the reasons why um, we shouldn't understand philosophers, philosophers who work on the ethics of war as, as really trying to, I mean, pronounce on specific conflicts. And most of the people I know who work on the ethics of war are really resistant to that kind of way of trying to force them. So I hate it when I give a talk and someone say, oh, so what do you think about Afghanistan? Or, you know, is it the skills that philosophers have are much more geared towards developing kind of general principles that people can use for reasoning when those are the people who have access to certain kinds of information that often ordinary people don't have access to. I mean, I should say it's not as if all of this kind of information is privileged, right? So I don't think you need to be in a special position to see that the Russian invasion is unjustified, for example. Um, but there'll be certain facts about things like um, the likely effects of sanctions, that there'll be people who are much better qualified than, than you or me uh, to make predictions about, uh, about the likely effects of various other sorts of actions that um, European and, and NATO states could take. So I do, I mean, I certainly think, I agree philosophers are, are very much best at cold takes, uh, but what philosophers who work on the ethics war are doing are cold takes, right? These aren't, nobody just came up with the principle of proportionality, you know, since 4am this morning. Um, this is a, a pretty long and well-established principle, though, of course, people disagree about exactly what it amounts to and how we should understand proportionality. Um, but certainly, you know, there are some things that are fairly obviously true, even, you know, granting the misinformation campaign. Um, and I think I, I'm not sure. I mean, in some sense, yeah, there's already been a whole ton of misinformation um, in some countries. Um, but I also think that there's going to be a lot of very high quality reporting that's accessible to people in other countries, partly because of the, the geography of, of Ukraine and also the fact that it's a country that's westernized and to which we have good access and we have journalists on the ground. Um, so I don't think that I don't know that misinformation in that sense. I mean, sure, Putin's going to feed people in Russia all kinds of nonsense as he already is. It's not new, um, but I don't think that's any barrier to understanding the justness of the war. So, so on this pod, we run hot and cold together, which is why so much of what we do is lukewarm. Um, can I can I think about a, a slightly different sort of topic then? Uh, again, I mean, for both of you, but particularly for you, Helen, because you'd have thought about it a lot so clearly in the modern era and particularly around what russia's does a lot of uh, their tactics relate to cyber warfare i'm just wondering not so much in this conflict but in conflicts generally is there any ethical differences between as it were conflict on the ground and cyber warfare that that, that we should be aware of or, or is it are they kind of very comparable i mean not really i mean again um like i kind of said at, at, at the outset i think the the moral principles that Govern the causing of harm are just the same across the board. And so if your cyber attack is going to cause harm, we should judge it in the same way as we would an ordinary kinetic attack. Um, I mean, there are difficult questions about cyber, but because of course often the harms are kind of they're indirect, they're mediated through, you know, you might knock out an air traffic control system or something, and so you don't, it's not like you shoot down the plane, but what you do is you make it impossible for the plane to navigate safely. Um, but insofar as you cause the plane to crash, um, I don't think there's any morally significant difference between that and shooting down a plane. 
Um, it's just that often the harms aren't like that. So in that case, you have a very concrete output that you can point, point to. Other kinds of cyber attacks are different. And so in those cases, understanding what a proportionate response would be, for example, can, can be more difficult. And, and also whether or not you can use, say, kinetic attacks or defenses against um, cyber attacks. So, I mean, I do think there are difficult and interesting questions about um, how we should deal with cyber attacks. Um, and I think it's likely that there are going to be some um, some part of the, the Russian campaign, which is for fire cyber attacks. But I don't think they're really the ones that are going to be at the forefront of, of the issues that we're facing. This just looks like a very kind of traditional war by land, water and air. Um, and so there's questions in that sense, I think, are going to be familiar from, from, from wars over the centuries. Thanks. Can, can I ask you one more question, Helen? Um, just going back to the whole issue of sovereignty around Ukraine and then thinking about analogies, which sometimes you know I've seen today in the news. So, I mean, the way you think about it and how other people think of it, right? So often we, we in warfare, there's a traditional way of thinking about things in terms of the person, right? So Ukraine's a person, they're a sovereign person, you know, they've got the right to defend themselves, just as you or I would have the right to defend ourselves against a personal attacks. So is that a useful way to think of it, right? So should we be thinking about Ukraine as a friend of ours, and we're trying to protect a friend against a bully? Is that useful? Or is that just... Um just not useful at all redundant i mean you know there are in fact real people in ukraine and you know so we don't need to imagine sort of you know pretend people who are who are pretend defending themselves there are actual people whose lives are being threatened who are actually defending themselves um and so we don't need to revert to some kind of analogy or hypothesis or whatever i mean um these are just very concrete threats to concrete people um so i don't think anything is gained by sort of positing the idea of states as persons with rights like persons. The fact is that states are made up of persons who, in fact, have rights. And it's those rights that are being defended. So I, I see that treating Ukraine as a person is a bit fanciful and is an analogy that might not be helpful. But we might still think of Ukraine as being able to make decisions collectively as a, as a group agent and to have stated policies um, and so the question of whether whether the Ukrainian people are committed to resisting Russia isn't simply a question, it seems, of whether individual people in Ukraine happen to want to resist Russia, but, but as it were, whether they've come together in the right sort of way to have a, a decision as a, as a state or as a nation. Is it just the sort of the fanciful treating Ukraine as a person that you're objecting to, or is it sort of bringing in group agents that that have agencies that's not reducible to individuals that you're objecting to? Uh, I mean, I'm not really a fan of the notion of group agency. Um, And also, I mean, we should all, in a sense, we can kind of set that aside because what we're really interested in here, I think, is would it make any moral difference? Um, And I think the answer is just going to be no. So you you can tell a story where you think that the right way to understand what goes on in a state is something like, um, people come together as a collective and then make a group decision that's not reducible to the preference, you know, preferences or decisions of any individual. Could it, for example, could, could that kind of process, for example, make it permissible for a state to do something that each individual will, would be prohibited from doing? Um, well, the answer to that seems like no. Um, so the, the moral rights and duties that the Ukrainian people have are the rights and duties of individuals and sort of combining those into the sort of, a, you know, a super Ukrainian isn't going to give us any um, different answers about what it is that 
they're permitted to do. Um, I mean, I should say this isn't a sort of this isn't a kind of um, individualist notion in the sense that it denies that we can sort of aggregate the harms that are threatening uh, the Ukrainian people. So, of course, what, part of what we care about is that the number of people whose rights are at stake here and that matters for determining how much force you're permitted to use in, in defense of those rights. Um, but it's again, it's ultimately it's it's because these are the rights of individual persons that we're allowed to use force. It's not because it's not defense of the, the state per se. It's a defense of the state's role in protecting the rights of its individual citizens, citizens that, that has the moral power. OK, great. Thanks, both of you. I think we'll leave it there and we'll join you in part two. And welcome back to this part. In his Netflix show, His Dark Material, Jimmy Carr told a joke about Roma people and the Holocaust. We're not going to repeat it here. You've possibly already heard it and you can easily find it. This joke outraged a number of people and the discussion continues. Some people are demonstrating outside Jimmy Carr's gigs. And this week, Jack D was on Good Morning Britain defending Jimmy Carr. Andy, can we turn to you and ask you about this? What, what do you think about the joke and about the outrage it sparked? Uh, what do I think about the joke? Well, the joke is a joke in the sense uh -huh. that it is technically... Um, and Jimmy Carr's very good at this. It is technically a perfect joke. I remember wow. we first met at a philosophy and humor conference That's right. that you organized at University of Kent. And one of the speakers, I think it was Noel Carroll, was talking about this topic yeah. about whether or not you can separate the morality of a joke from its uh, how funny it is. Yeah. And this was like a textbook example of this because I was discussing this with some comedians, um, as we do in a in a green room before a show. So yeah, if, you, if you just look at the joke, it does everything a joke is supposed to do. It's uh -huh. economical. There yeah. is uh, misdirection. There is an element of shock there. Yeah, it is a perfect joke. But the problem yeah. is, there's also it will offend a lot of people because it is a Holocaust joke and also because, well, the butt of the joke is um, is gypsy, Ro Roma people. Yeah. Um, he does have form with this. Um, a few years back, I was on Loose Ends, uh -huh. which I'm sure you're an avid Radio 4 listener. Oh, yeah, yeah. Know and uh, told a joke about gypsies on that. And um, Arthur Smith was was one of the regular panellists on there, was particularly upset about that, thinking, yeah. crikey, we, we set up alternative comedy precisely not to do these sorts of things. And what's my opinion? Well, he had set up a context for it, Jamie, Jimmy Carr. Yeah. Calling it, it, the show was called... Um, his dark materials. Yeah. And I think it was set up with a line that some of these are going to be potentially career ending jokes. Yeah. And so the audience did realize this is going to be in poor taste. And having met him a few times, um, 
a couple of times back in the day before he was famous, he was we were both doing open spots at a uh-huh. gig called Downstairs at the King's Head. He was a young hustling comedian there. And a couple of times since he's become famous, he's a perfectly charming man. I don't think he has any animosity towards Roma people. I don't think he's a racist person at all. He's just a guy who technically produces jokes and just looks at the technical side of yeah. them and thinks, yes, that works as a joke. I'll put it out there. Of course, he's being self-aware about it by putting it as his dark materials, but yeah. I don't think he personally um, hates ethnic minorities or wishes them ill. He's just aware of that stereotype and will use that. Um, I don't know if you've ever read his book, The Naked Jape. No, I haven't read it. Right. Um, so many, many, many years ago, and something he said in it was... I think it was quite relevant. It was talking about Polish jokes uh-huh. in the States. And uh, over there, Polish jokes are the equivalent of um, what Irish jokes were over here. Yeah. And there was something in it that said that um, studies had shown that attitudes towards Polish people in real life were not affected uh-huh. by Polish jokes. And um, I thought that was very interesting because I remember when when I was a boy, if I heard or told Irish jokes, I wouldn't think of real Irish people as being like that. Yeah, it was just in in the realm of jokes. That's what Irish people were. Yeah, and I think he's approaching me. The so, yeah, I can see how, how Jimmy might might approach it like that. So, so of course, this is this is audios, right? So people, unfortunately, Andy, you're not as famous as you should be, right? <laughs> but people, people, people won't realize that you're you're a black black comic, right? So then, I mean, just thinking about that, I mean, you know, you, you're growing up in Birmingham, and I grew up in Dudley, right? I heard lots of racist jokes when I was growing mm-hmm. up in the 70s and 80s, and no doubt you did as well. And presumably mm-hmm. they would have hurt you quite a lot if you'd have if you'd have heard yes. them. Yes. So so clearly, if you're Irish or indeed Roma, then it's going to these these words are going to hurt, right? So I'm just wondering what it's like for you hearing this sort of joke and thinking about your experiences. Yes, yes, I, I was going to say um, that although that was my attitude towards Irish people in Irish jokes, yeah, I didn't feel as if it was the same for say other people, other minorities in equivalent jokes yeah. that usually they did express a sort of genuine animosity yeah. towards people. Or even if people didn't have that animosity, they were, um, as Robin Ince says in his Cosmic Shamble blog, an example of people saying, oh, let's see how shocking I can be. I yeah. know this is edgy. I'm going to tell it. And and, and yes, uh, people did say those sort of things to me. You know, I had the, you know, case and, you know monkey chants and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And so... I would, so I understand where people's offence is coming from and it's, uh, and I have no objection to people, even even people turning up outside and saying what he's saying is wrong and offensive. Yeah. I think that's perfectly legitimate. Um, and I'm, I'm a member of a community choir. Uh-huh. This will become relevant in a moment. And 
You're going to get you to sing for us. <laughs> it's a community choir, which means you don't have to audition for it, which means they take anybody. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> well, they, they've taken you, right? Perhaps, perhaps yes. I can join in. <laughs> Indeed, tell me, tell me you're from Dudley. You can come along. Okay, brilliant. Uh, but uh, and uh, same same comedian and one one guy says oh so so you probably uh, probably don't uh, don't like all this woke nonsense do you yeah. and I say well actually no I'm, I have no problem with it um, one of the advantages of all this sort of woke nonsense as people say is it brings in uh, lots of categories of people you wouldn't have yeah in uh, in previous eras you know. Um, so if you were I similar age, but you might remember that TV show, The Comedians. Yeah. Uh, Bernard Manning and all that. That's right. And, and a lot of them, you know, perfectly, perfectly good. I remember um, Ken Godwin, who used to tell these lovely, weird little puns and laugh at his own jokes. Lovely fella. And all sorts of mainstream people. And it would just be a lot of white guys. Yeah. Telling jokes about what it's like to be a white guy who's married and all that sort of stuff yeah. so from that perspective. Whereas from the eighties onwards with the advent of alternative comedy, we got to hear more from um, women, particularly you know, like Joe Brand. We got to hear more from sort of gay people. There was some, um, you know, Julian Clary, people like that yeah. talking about it and uh, uh, black people as well, sort of, um, Lenny Henry, I oh, how should we Lenny is more of a sort of a, a an amphibious creature because he sort of started out sort of pandering a bit to yeah. stereotypes, you know, appearing on the black and white minstrel show. That's right, I remember. But eventually, but he evolved into a comedian who would talk um, in a more interesting way about race issues. I remember his um, elderly character, Decus. Yeah. You know, going, oh, um, all that sort of, and he would talk about the experience of being a uh, an immigrant from the Caribbean back in the fifties, and you had all these other characters like Delbert Wilkins, and that would talk about what it's like to be a young black man on the streets and racist policing and all that sort of stuff. But but that's what happens when you have well, what we used to call political correctness back day, back in the day, or even in the eighties, yeah. being right on, is you get a. a a more a broader perspective and i think that's healthy for comedy and also um if people don't like jokes and they want to complain about them that is fine you could be very right wing about it and say that's them just exercising their influence in the marketplace mm-hmm. somebody has produced a product they do not like they do not wish to see more of this product Therefore, they want to exert their influence as consumers of comedy to see less of that product in future. Yeah, um, that's so, fine so here, as well. Here's a thought, then, Andy, for, to you as a as a practicing comedian. I mean, of course, you you got you'll have your own act and, and your persona, and, and same for, for for anyone else. I mean, do you think there are any any topics? I mean, that are off limits. So, so I mean, Jimmy Carl's telling a, a Holocaust joke, and that's that's pretty extreme. We can think of other extreme um, examples as well. Uh, I'm not saying about you and your act because it's a different sort of act, right? From Jimmy Carr's, you know, quite quite obviously. But do you think there are any sort of topics that are are just beyond humour, or do you think that 
any topic can be tackled through humour, but it's going to be tackled in a certain sort of way, perhaps even by a certain sort of person. How, how, how do you think about that sort of that sort of issue? Well, y- yes, I think um, any topic can be ter- can be used for humour. And it is about the way of approaching it. You know, there's all the, the usual stuff about you know punching up rather yep. than down. Uh, what's the saying about uh, uh, comedy should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? Yeah, those sort of things. And there is this idea that um, a, cer- a certain type of person should do a certain type of jokes. Um, I can see. There is value in that. Uh-huh. Um, I think, like me, you may be familiar with the uh, YouTuber Natalie Wynn, yeah, who yeah. produces uh, ContraPoints. Yeah. Uh, trans woman talking about the way in which comedians approach trans issues uh-huh. and comparing the sort of stuff um, um, uh, Ricky, Ricky Gervais would do. Yeah, about trans issues with the sort of jokes an actual trans person would do, and they just the trans person that just actually just knows more about this, and will able to give more a more interesting perspective, do more interesting jokes about it. Whereas Ricky Gervais is mm-hmm. well, oh, I can't identify as an attack helicopter. It's just that same bloody joke over and over yeah, again yeah. these people make. But at the same time, I also think um, I'm a comedian. I got into comedy. One of the reasons why I got comedy is because I just wanted to spout off about whatever is in my head and do it in a funny way. And if I want to spout off about lots of different things yes i will try and make sure that i get the best information about those sort of things um for instance um, dave Chappelle talking about trans issues i don't object well perhaps not my place to object but I, i will say it anyway i don't think the issue is that he as an african American straight male is talking about trans issues i think the issue is that he's maybe giving some inaccurate perspective on these things. Same with J.K. Rowling. Yes, she can write those essays as a, as a straight white uh, woman, but the issue is, are they accurate? And um, going back to long time now, um, Lionel Shriver, mm-hmm. uh, we need to talk about Kevin, and she wrote an essay about this sort of thing, talking about having Mexican characters in her novels and people saying, well, should you, should you be doing this? Should you, as you're saying, the issue is, am I getting it right? And that for me is the issue. Are you getting it right? Have you done the research? So if you're, if you're telling jokes and they are sort of well-researched jokes, that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, if some, if, if a white person wants to talk about what happens in the black community, but it's clear to me that their jokes are, are well informed, then that's fine. I mean, the alternative is that if we only talk about things we know about, you just yeah. end up with comedians just talking about just talking about writing jokes. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, we're going to the we shops. already have Stuart Lee for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can, can I then can I go back to Jimmy Carr then? So yeah, oh, yes. you said you yeah. thought it, you know, it, was a, it was a perfect joke. And actually, I didn't think it was that good a joke. I mean, aside from, from the content, as it were, I didn't think it was that, it was yeah. that good a joke. But even a, a, aside from that, I mean, the, you know, you mentioned the Robin Ince piece in in Cosmic Shambles where he has a blog. And if anyone hasn't read it, it's well worth um, looking for. I mean, Robin has mm-hmm. has all sorts of worries there about Jimmy Carr and other people, um, you know, punching down um, to to mm-hmm. Boma and other and other people. But also, I mean, you know, he he, he makes the point. I think you, you mentioned it earlier on that something that that he didn't like was it just seemed as a bit too slick, right? It was kind of like almost Jimmy Carr reading off a clipboard. This is a kind of shockable thing. Tick. And I suppose that's also something I thought was it was it was quite it was sort of like in, it came from a from a piece of indifference, right? That there are all these people, right? I, you know, just going back to your point, this is where I'm getting to, right? So Jimmy Carr's not 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 a Roma. He's, he doesn't know much about traveller people, perhaps. He's just coming from. There's an interesting joke. It's not it's not about the Jews. It's about travellers. Tick, right? And that doesn't really kind of come from a place where there's an interesting insightful yet still piece of humor to be made then about about the suffering that was experienced by a large group of people just as i can imagine uh, and this is quite controversial why i asked you the question i can imagine that there could be um in fact there's there are some some jokes about the holocaust but told by by jewish people as part of a tradition of kind of mourning and grieving right and actually humor can be, can mm-hmm. work in that way and in fact and that's a very that's a very brief sketch but you can imagine that there might be some sort of tradition like that where they it, jokes are things that bring people together but only they can tell them right in a certain sort of way whereas jimmy carr isn't doing that sort of thing at all i'm just wondering what you thought about about that i mean, so, so robin's piece really struck a chord with me because i thought yeah it's just jimmy carr just doing a slick indifferent mm-hmm. thing right and there's not really kind of it's just a kind of two minute look at i look at me i'm being shocking and then he's going to move on i just wonder what you thought about that well yes everything okay. you said there is true uh-huh. it is him being slick and shocking that's what he does when i said it was a perfect joke i was thinking it's technically yeah, technically, technically perfect it, joke yeah it's yeah, a yeah, technically yeah, yeah. perfect um, I think I think everyone would have understood. I hope that that's what you were talking about, right? from the craft of a comedian. Yeah, right? sure. Although actually, I, I didn't think it was but, that uh, good. But I've, 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 I've debated okay. with my son as well at the moment, so that's fine. Go, go on. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, what I will say is, it's not the sort. It's not a joke I would have told. Yeah. Precisely because it would have got that reaction. Yeah. Um, right. But bit of a confession. Um, I have written and experimented with um, um, racist jokes. Yeah. What's, um, well, I'll talk it through. I probably won't go into it in detail. Um, My brother, his Uh fiance is from the Philippines. And we were talking once about uh, gifts and that, and saying that amongst her friends and family, um, if you received something in gold and yeah. it's less than nine carat gold uh-huh. they feel offended and they will give it back uh-huh. you know it's a it's a poor country so things like gold hold value so that yeah. would be important about them and then i heard about a filipino woman who won gold medal 
Yeah. And I thought, what's what's the perspective I can put on this? And and so I used that concept. And I was thinking at the time, is it a racist joke? And I was thinking, yes, it is technically a racist joke, but yeah. is it the sort of racist joke where people go, oh, that's a bit cheeky? Yeah. Or is it more sort of like the Jimmy yeah. Carr end of things says, no, that is in really poor taste. Yeah. That is making light of, of a terrible thing. And I tried it out and somebody spoke to me privately about it and said, yeah, it's a racist joke, isn't it, Andy? It says, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Even if my future sister-in-law thought it was all right, it is because you also have to take into account, this get back to the Jimmy Carr thing, um, how it can be taken out of the context. Yes, he created that context in his show of, oh, this is a dark joke. This is a potentially yeah. career-ending joke, so take it as that. But we found out about that joke. The furore came when somebody took that joke out of that context, and it was tweeted round about the time of World Holocaust Day. Yeah. That's when it came out. And, you know, you don't have to be a Roland Barthes yeah. to see that the intention of... Um, a joke teller is only part of the story. Yeah. There's also how it's likely to be received out of context. So I think if you're being thoughtful, you should think, okay, then I'm telling this joke here. What's the likelihood that a reasonable person could um, see this joke in a different context and come up with a, a different conclusion yeah so that that's that's can i ask you just one more question andy because it oh, please yes the question i want to ask you just just follows on straight from that um so kind of philosophers think a lot about and 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 uh people involved in the law think a lot about offense and harm the difference between them how they shade into one another where the where the borders lie and as a as a performer uh, as an artist, you're right on on the front line of of, of thinking about that in in the in, in this context, and this is the, the Jimmy Carr joke is a really good good example of this. And just it was really interesting to hear you with the example just now about the, about the Filipino joke, right? About trying to in a way police yourself, like trying something out, getting feedback from audience, and trying to think about when offence might slip into profound offence and perhaps also be a type of harm because it's clearly that there's people in the traveller community reacting to Jimmy Carr's joke. I mean, it might increase the level of, of vulnerability they have to be to be harmed by others, but they're clearly getting into a situation of profound offence where it's, where it's kind of anguish to them. I'm just wondering, do you think a lot about this as a performer? Mm -hmm. do, I mean, when you're in the green room with others, is, is this a kind of topic of conversation at the moment with, with other comedians, thinking about offence and how it's going to be received by the audience and do you think you've got a duty not slightly to offend people because that might be part of the act but also to to watch out for offending people too much i mean how, how, do, how do you judge that sort of situation well uh, most conversations in green rooms are about petrol prices <laughs> sure <laughs> and, uh, and what diversions are going to be on the m6 on the way home yeah yeah but um but in terms of uh, talking about harm jokes can do, there's the argument a joke is just a joke. Yeah. But then they always think, um, I do that thing sometimes where people say, describe your job in the weirdest way possible. Yeah. 
and I say, um, I make groups of strangers convulse. Uh-huh. Reason being, I say things, and those things have a physical effect on people. Uh-huh. So you can't say jokes are just jokes and they don't do anything. Yeah. When your living is based on combining words or actions in such a way that yeah. it makes people <laughs> physically react in yeah. a profound way. Words, as you know, J.L. Austin. Yeah. You do things with words. You do things with jokes. Jokes do have an effect. And if you're somebody with, you know, a big platform like Jimmy Carr or if it's BBC, ITV, somewhere like that, then you do really have to think very carefully mm-hmm. about what you're putting out there because that will have a profound influence on people. Yeah. You only have to look at what happened with the Brexit debate and the toxicity around that. And I believe there was an increase in uh, racist attacks because of that debate, because it was framed in uh, racist terms to do with immigration and other dog whistles, that sort of thing. So yes, you do have to take that into account. And there is a difference between the sort of jokes you might say between you and your friends and the sort of sometimes horrible things you might say to each other, but because it comes from a place of love and you just, just a bit of banter, that's fine. But going out into the audience, uh-huh. saying that you would not, I would not. There are, there, 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 there are things that um, say my disabled friends would say yeah. to each other. Yeah. Jokes they would make to each other that I wouldn't make on stage because that would be construed as me sort of punching down yeah sure and, and being abusive so yes do have to take that into account okay. uh, definitely that 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 is a thing jokes do have an effect thanks Andy. that was really interesting um, i think we better draw things to a close there but i'm really grateful for you giving up your time and uh, for appearing with us here on philosophy takes on the news yeah thanks for having me and welcome back proposed legislation on police crime sentencing and courts is working its way through the uk parliament at present due to return to the commons next week the uk government looks set to reject a lord's amendment to make misogyny a hate crime in england and wales the scottish government is at the moment considering the issue and there are lots of other issues besides. Um, Helen, can we turn to you again uh, to help us understand what's going on here? There's been two bits of legislation that kind of um, have caught my eye recently. So one is a bill to make misogyny a hate crime. And it looks like uh, the government are not going to support this bill, which is currently making its way through Parliament. Um, And the second is what's known as Harper's Law, which is um, a law that will make it will make life sentences mandatory for anybody who kills an emergency worker um, during the course of committing a crime. And I think both of these are, are interesting. So um, so to take the first one, then the, the, the misogyny one. So the, the idea when you when you make something a hate crime is that um, it 
counts as an aggravating factor when it comes to sentencing. And also it means the police have to record it as a hate crime. And so you get um, a record of, of how prevalent these um, sort of motivations for crimes. And so I think one question here is whether we should have whether we should have hate crimes at all. And so part of what's happened in this case is that the Law Commission have um, produced a report saying that they don't think that the bill is a good idea. This is one of the reasons why the government seem unlikely to support it. And one of the reasons that it gives for rejecting the bill is that it says that this will create a new kind of hierarchy of victims of certain types of crime like rape or domestic violence. Um, But that's just true of all hate crime legislation. So, you know, the law says, for example, that it's worse if I murder you because you're gay than if I murder you because, you know, you've cut me off at a junction or something like that. Um, also, you know, steal your wallet or whatever it might be. And so I think those can be reasons to reject the notion of hate crimes altogether. But it's hard to see how they could be reasons to reject hate crimes against women in particular. Yeah. And, and just on that, Helen, I mean, that there's a, another thing in the in the Law Commission report that I saw where they said it might make, uh, if this was introduced, then it might make for, for some offenders, uh, might create the, the incentive to, to have a badge of honour, right? So to be labelled a misogynist who's, who's killed someone or obviously inflicted a huge amount of uh, grievous harm to, to, to someone. And, and, and do you think that that applies to hate crime in general again? I mean, it's pretty hard to see how that could possibly work. I mean, you know, either you're a misogynist or you're not. It's not really an attitude that you can adopt mm-hmm. um, in, or- <laughs> in order to achieve some sort of, a, you know, um, in- for some sort of incentive. So um, the idea that um, so you were going to you were going to murder X and now if you do it for a misogynist reason, then you get branded a misogynist and so you decide to become a misogynist whereas before you're completely pro equal equal rights for women um but now you know if you if you uh, reject that view then you get this, i mean that get this badge of honor this is just a very silly view i don't understand how okay. this argument is supposed to work um, i actually thought the law commission report was pretty pretty poor in, in in various respects actually and one of the other things it says is that um uh the bill wouldn't solve the problem of hostility towards women and again it does seem like uh wrongs against women are being held to just a different standard here. I mean, again, no one thinks that having that recording hate crimes, you know, homophobic crimes, racist crimes, solves the problems of homophobia or racism in society. That's not the function of the law. Um, what we tend to think is that there's, there's value in um, expressing publicly the condemnation of those particular of motives that are particularly harmful for society. Um, and also recording um, the numbers of these crimes so that we have an idea of how prevalent they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the law is not intended to to solve sexism or homo- homophobia or transphobia. Um, and so it does seem kind of I mean, I do wonder if that's partly part, part of the reason why the government don't particularly want to support this bill is that just recording um, the number of crimes motivated by misogyny would just lay bare just mm-hmm. how absolutely pervasive it is. And how many crimes are motivated by things like the view that women are basically property, and you know, that you'd sort of throw open the lid on this this enormous problem that has been sort of systematically marginalised. And so, it, yeah, I thought the Law Commission's report was, in many respects, disappointing. Although one of the things that's interesting about it is that it does suggest that it would be better to put forward legislation that makes certain types of behaviours criminal that currently aren't. Mm. So things like catcalling, harassing women yeah. in the street, curb crawling, that kind of thing. So that's I thought that was kind of interesting in a way that um, that's more radical in a sense because the the existing proposed bill would simply wouldn't make uh, wouldn't make anything 
a crime that isn't currently a crime, it would make misogyny an, an aggravating factor yeah. of existing crime. So if I assault you because you're a woman, it would be an aggravating factor. It doesn't make being a misogynist a crime. Um, whereas the Law Commission's suggestion is that um, you might criminalise behaviours which are really commonplace, um, like shouting at women in the street and so on. Um, and that's actually much more radical. And um, it will be interesting to see whether or not the government adopts this this suggestion as well as adopting the, the, the negative suggestions of the Law Commission report. I wonder if there's a thought about, I mean, just about the scale of, of things we're involved in here. So I, I really like your suggestion that one could interpret the motivation here as being to avoid having to lay bare the scale of misogyny. And the thought is, if one's community is not particularly diverse, um, either racially or in terms of sexuality or so on, hate crime is a thing that largely involves other people. And one can allow it as an aggravating factor without really it changing your day-to-day life in any interesting way. Where if misogyny really is sort of just layered through the experiences of half of the population. There's no sense in which this can be offered as a thing, um, as a sop to other people um, by legislators or so on. It's actually, it's going to affect um, how we think about just huge numbers of interactions. And so, I, I mean, I totally take the point that the arguments are going to apply equally to all hate crimes, but as it were, one of this scale, people are going to be invested in whether or not it passes um, in a way that they might not if it's something that happens to communities that they don't interact with in the same way. And that's not a defense. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that, that in no way actually um, defends this thought, but it might at least explain why there's resistance um, picking up on, on the things you've said. I mean, that, I mean, that might be true. I mean, it's, I mean, again, it's not as if this law would criminalize things which aren't currently criminal. So these are already wrongs that are happening. The thought would simply be that we identify them legally as having a particular motive and that bears on, on, on sentencing and recording. So it's not as if it would suddenly make us aware that women are sexually assaulted in a way that we hadn't been before. There'd be no more crimes reported, right? There'd be no, the, the number of sexual assaults wouldn't go up. Well, so, so there's a, a separate question of what maybe um, whether this could signal uh, an increased willingness to prosecute these crimes. Yeah. Um, but just the mere fact itself of, of saying that this is an aggravating factor isn't going to increase the number of sexual assaults or the number that are reported. Um, so I don't know that it would suddenly make these assaults more salient to, to people than, than they were before. I mean, I think, well, I mean, of course, there's always um, interesting and difficult questions about implementing any new law. And one, one would be something like how we understand misogyny, because misogyny, misogyny is not the same as sexism, right? So to, to be sexist is just to kind of have certain discriminatory attitudes about, about women or, or men, um, whereas misogyny is, is um, to be motivated by the hatred of women. And so you could imagine that there could be lots of wrongs that are done to women, some crimes that are done to women because they're women. Um, but not motivated by the fact that somebody hates women or has this kind of really objectionable mm. attitudes towards women, but they might nonetheless be sexist. So, I mean, in some ways, if the law really did track misogyny, then its scope would be comparatively narrow. Um, and I wonder if it's been in some sense portrayed as um, any crime that's committed against someone because they are a woman mm. um, would fall under the, the, the scope of the new bill. Um, but that seems unlikely to be true. It would have to be if, if it was motivated really be a misogyny bill it would have to be crimes that were motivated by the fact that somebody kind of really despises women in some sort of quite particular sense so we capture your kind of your ill incel cases right so that's that's partly what this has been motivated by um so the kind of you know these people who spend all their days on on forums ranting about how no one will have sex with them uh, and then eventually some of them go and kill some people so we capture those kinds of cases um but it wouldn't capture cases which in which say someone might pick 
pick a victim of a mugging because they're a woman and therefore going to be much easier to to physically overpower. Um, so I might it could well be true that I might steal from someone because they're a female, uh, because I know it's just easier that I'll much more likely I'll succeed. But that wouldn't fall under the scope of the misogyny bill. So one of the the thoughts is if we think there's a concern about the sheer scale of misogyny that gets experienced by women, kind of what we infer about how many people there are committing this. So it's it's kind of logically possible that there's a very small number of people that are having a huge impact. And equally, it's possible that it's just everybody, you know, including many women, you know, like, what kind of inferences should we be making about the scale of the problem from misogynists rather than merely the scale of the impact on women? I mean, I think there's pretty good reason to think that there are lots of misogynists. And I think that women's experiences um, give us <laughs> plenty of evidence that um, this is not just one or two people just going around harassing lots of women. Um, this is extremely widespread. I mean, I think one of the um, clearest ways to see this is if you look at something, so something I've done a bit of work on is um, uh, revenge porn. Um, so when people, usually men, uh, take images of, um, intimate images of, of often their ex-partners um, and put them on websites for other people to look at without the subject's consent. Um, and also uh, the Telegraph community, which is a particularly despicable community, which um, in which you can go Not on and newspaper. Ask... <laughs> it's the other despicable community. Um, um, in... <laughs> Different type of Telegraph readers um, uh, where they you can put requests on for women in your local community um, to find out if anybody's got naked photos of them. And so you can kind of put out a call to find um, images of particular people that you know, um, and very often um, people oblige. Um, and I think just the, the numbers of people that use these kinds of, of um, fora is just an enormous, right? Um, and so the, the idea that what we've got here is just a, a few people who are just really busy um, doing all the harassment um, it's just super implausible. I mean, it's very obviously not true. Um, and so even though there's some scope for thinking about how widely we interpret misogyny. Like, so, for example, I, I, I think that someone who has the view that women are essentially, I mean, I think a lot of misogyny is underpinned by the view that women are essentially men's property. Um, I think that this it underpin, it underpins things like the revenge porn phenomenon to a great extent. Right? There's often these, the reason why it's called revenge porn, a lot of people don't like that label. Um, but I think it's it's kind of fitting because it it does cap. People think that if you call it revenge porn, you're suggesting that the victims have done something to deserve it. But of course, that's just a mistake about what the, about the meaning of the word revenge. Mm -hmm. So revenge is about the perpetrator's intentions, and it's very clear that in these cases, these are intended as punitive acts. Um, and what they're trying to punish is ordinarily something like the fact that this woman has left them. Right? That's the standard case: is that it's your ex-girlfriend and she's dumped you. And so what you do is that um, because you think she wasn't entitled not to be your girlfriend anymore, that she was your girlfriend and she didn't get to go unless you you said she could, that what you do is you punish her by publishing these kinds of images. And that kind of attitude, is, is, I mean, it's the same you see, of course, with domestic violence all the time, like women who flee, flee violent husbands, mm -hmm. um, this kind of, you know, if I can't have you, no one can have you, um, explains why a lot of women are murdered by their former partners who simply are outraged at the thought that this woman might have thought that she didn't in fact belong to them. Um, and so once you include that as misogyny, which I think it clearly is misogyny, then the, the, you know, the number of crimes that are aggravated by misogyny is enormous, um, especially if, I mean, and the number of wrongs is even bigger. Um, I mean, so I think that people who go and look at these images on revenge porn websites, even if they're not the people uploading them, I think the people who just go and look at them should also be criminalized. 
Um, and that looking is clearly misogynistic because it endorses the perpetrator's view that these women don't have proper ownership rights over their own body and, and images of their body. Um, and that it's OK to look at these women uh, images without their consent. Um, so that kind of denial of equal status, I think, is is, is the real kind of the, the crux of misogyny that you might not get with sexism in the same mm. way. So you can be sexist and have certain discriminatory, discriminatory attitudes in a way that doesn't necessarily deny that women have equal status. Um, misogyny is fundamentally about thinking that women are importantly lesser. Um, and I think that if you're going to have hate crime legislation, it's really hard to justify having it for things like homophobic crimes, racist crimes, but not having it for misogynistic crimes. So, Helen, here's a, a question about that particular example, right, about revenge porn or, or about similar sort of examples you've just mentioned. And thinks it's about going back to the legislation and about proving intent, right? So, because it might be quite tricky to prove the sort of intent we're talking about here, right? So, proving a proving intent about hatred towards a particular woman and then hatred towards women. So, how might we go about? I mean, thinking about philosophers or legal philosophers, thinking about you know action, right? Which is one of what we we think about here. How might we go about proving intention around misogyny of women in general rather than taking revenge against a particular woman i mean again that's just a, a, a problem that cuts across all hate crimes so why how uh -huh. do you show that they didn't just really dislike this black person as opposed to disliking black people in general but i think it also um speaks to what we were just saying about the um how we should understand misogyny um because a lot of the so it I don't think we have to particularly say that this person hates all women. It would have to be something like, does this person... So say someone murders their partner because she's left him. Mm -hmm. Well, someone who thinks they're entitled to murder their partner because she's left them expresses through that action the view that the, the partner is their property, um, that she wasn't entitled to leave them, that she's wronged them by leaving them, and that therefore he's going to kill them. Um, and that's enough to make it misogynist. And Often people are pretty, you know, men who commit these crimes are often completely straightforward about this is why they've done it. You see this with uh, familiar side cases as well, where uh -huh. they'll leave a note saying, you know, where the, the motivations are clear. Um, so you have these terrible cases where, where uh, men commit suicide and first they, they kill their families. And often the reasons are things like she was going to leave me. Um, and so I don't think it's actually often, you know, sometimes, of course, it's difficult, just like it's difficult to prove intentions and crimes in general. I don't see why it's any harder in cases that are motivated by misogyny. Certainly no harder than proving a racist motivation, for example. Sure. Okay, thanks both of you. Let's leave things there. Um, thank you, uh, Helen and Graham, for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. And all being well, we'll see, see you next week for another Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm -hmm.